Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jamima Pierre of the Black Alliance for Peace team on Haiti, who examines the current crisis in Haiti and explains why her organization and other civil society groups are opposed to foreign military intervention. William Lozanik, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts, who urges President Biden to issue an executive order banning oil companies from using their record profits for stock buybacks. And Michael Hendricks of the University of Indiana, who talks about mountaintop removal coal mining's negative health impacts and his disappointment that President Biden hasn't yet resumed a health study halted by Donald Trump. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Mexico's populist president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, ran for election on a promise to depoliticize the military and return soldiers to their barracks. Four years later, however, AMLO has given the generals more power than they've enjoyed in over 20 years. In September, Mexico's legislature placed the civilian-run National Guard under the control of the Defense Ministry. At the same time, Mexico's military was embarrassed after a massive hack of their computer system exposed links between government officials and drug cartels. Leaked emails from the military accused AMLO's current interior minister, Adan Augusto Lopez, of giving top security positions to officials linked to organized crime when he served as the governor of Tabasco State. Other leaked emails exposed the military's use of the Israeli spyware, known as Pegasus, against journalists and human rights activists despite AMLO's pledge not to do so. The Mexican army, which has a long history of human rights abuses and massacres of civilians, has an active force of 240,000 soldiers spread across the country, now four times the size of the military under previous civilian presidents. Moreover, AMLO has given the military unprecedented power over $45 billion allocated to infrastructure projects, including a new airport, a thousand-mile railroad, and plans to establish a military-run tourist agency. African environmental campaigners assert illegal mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is destroying pristine tracks of the Okapi Wildlife Refuge, a UNESCO World Heritage Site established to protect the Okapi, an endangered species. Industrial activities are banned in the 13,000-acre reserve. Aerial photos supplied by the activists show mining operations continue in the region. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has linked conflict, mining, and hunting as threats to the Okapi. Activists blamed a Chinese company, Kamiya Mining, for the damage. The Council for Environmental Defense, through legality and traceability, charged that continued destruction of the world's second-largest rainforest is at odds with the DRC government's commitment to forest preservation and climate change. Across the northern DRC, Chinese companies are linked 
to the destruction of 200-year-old rainforest trees, as African teakwood is sold in luxury markets in China and elsewhere in Asia. Currently, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and Norway are monitoring DRC's pledge to promote forest conservation and address climate change, a pledge made at the COP26 climate summit. However, DRC's rainforests remain under dire threat. In March, election deniers in rural Nye County, Nevada, called on county commissioners to change how elections are run. Their demands included the use of paper ballots and hand-counting to calculate results. However, County Clerk Sandra Merlino said the election deniers' claims of poor ballot security were bogus, since the county's election machines were not connected to the Internet and counting ballots by hand is costly and unreliable. Still, the county commissioners voted 5-0 to zero for the county clerk to study the proposal. Merlino soon resigned and was quickly replaced by Mark Kempf, who planned to institute a hand count for the 2022 midterm election. The demands of an extremist minority in Nevada illustrates the growing power of election deniers over city and state election administration. Pro-Trump election deniers could win Secretary of State races in Arizona, Michigan, and Nevada, potentially subverting the results in the 2024 presidential election. Pro-democracy activists say election deniers are deliberately employing a strategy to create chaos and confusion over close elections. Many experienced nonpartisan election administrators are now quitting as they face intimidation and harassment from Trump supporters. The Guardian newspaper observes, while there have been long fights in America over who gets to vote, this new toxin is focused on how the vote is counted and undermining confidence in the results. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Twelve years after the devastating earthquake that struck Haiti in January 2010, which killed an estimated 160,000 people, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere remains in political and economic crisis. The Haitian people today are confronted by a deadly cholera epidemic, gang violence, food shortages, and rampant inflation, a situation that has only intensified since President Jovenel Moise was assassinated in July. For weeks, protesters have been in the streets demanding the removal of Haiti's acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry, who in mid-September eliminated subsidies that caused gas prices to more than double. After fuel prices spiked, Haiti's most powerful gang, G9 Families and Allies, led by former police officer Jimmy Barbecue Charizier, dug trenches to block access to the country's largest fuel terminal, vowing not to leave until Henri resigns and prices for fuel and basic goods decline. Earlier this month, Prime Minister Henri appealed to the international community to send in a military intervention force, a position rejected by many of Haiti's civil society groups. In response to the crisis, 
The United Nations Security Council unanimously passed a resolution on October 21st that imposed sanctions on Cherezier that includes an assets freeze and travel ban. Your reporter spoke with Jemima Pierre, co-coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace Team on Haiti and associate professor of African American Studies at UCLA. Here she discusses the current crisis in Haiti and explains why her group is opposed to foreign military intervention. One of the key reasons for the major protests on the street was economic. You know, we're suffering inflation here in the U.S., but inflation in Haiti is about 40 percent. And they're saying it might be up to 50 percent by next month. And one of the key reasons for that, in addition to the global crisis, is that the U.S. through the IMF has been trying has been trying to get Haiti to remove the Haitian government to remove fuel subsidies from the Haitian people. And when Moïse tried to do it back in 2019, everyone took to the streets to protest, and he couldn't get it done. But Ayo Ali, about exactly eight weeks ago, uh, removed fuel subsidies. And, you know, most countries provide subsidies for everyone, farmers, you know, in the U.S., farmers are subsidized and so on. In Haiti, this is the only thing that is subsidizing. That's the only subsidies Haitian gets. And so all of a sudden you have gas prices go from about $3, $4 a gallon to about $6, $7, $10 a gallon when the average minimum wage, the daily minimum wage in Haiti is about $2. And so that's really, you know, the the two main causes of people being on the street is protesting this illegitimate government, but also protesting the increased economic distress that the removal of the subsidies has brought to, to, to people. Dr. Pierre, I wanted you to comment on some news that I was reading about earlier today, and that is the United Nations Security Council is considering what to do, if anything, in the crisis here in Haiti, where in addition to the violence and protests, there's also food shortages. What is your position and the Black Alliance for Peace in terms of foreign intervention which the United Nations Security Council has in the past ordered and could order again. Our position has been clear from the very beginning. We follow the Haitian people who absolutely do not want foreign armed soldiers on the ground. You know, Haiti has been invaded many times by the U.S. government. 1915 was a 19-year occupation. And then you've had the 90s, multiple times where the U.S. Marines would come in and invade the country. And every single time, it's been complete brutality, um, rapes. An NGO had to basically sue the U.N. for all the children that were fathered when they raped these young girls when they were uh, occupying Haiti. They brought cholera. They dumped fecal matter in the main river of the Artibonit River in the middle of Haiti, which sickened a million people and killed about 30,000. And so the last thing people want is to have these soldiers going around with guns and tanks pointing at them, right? And so our position is to follow the Haitian people. We work with local organizations on the ground, and no one in Haiti wants a foreign intervention except for the puppet government that thinks that having foreigners shoot at people um, on the ground um, <laughs> will, will protect, protect them. And we, our position is that we need to respect Haitian sovereignty. How is it that Haiti is the only country in the region that doesn't get to have sovereignty? And we also call on all the so-called leftist governments in the region to speak out. One of the key problems for us is the fact that AMLO, the Mexican Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's supposedly a leftist government, his 
the co-pen holder in the U.N. writing this resolution for bringing a foreign force into Haiti. And we also have to remember that it was Colombian mercenaries that assassinated Haiti's president and that the current prime minister, which people don't want, is implicated in this murder. So the Haitians, all they see in foreign occupation is misery and death and a loss of sovereignty. And no one should stand by and allow that to happen. And so opposition is the, Haiti, the, the, the Haitian masses' position against occupation. Dr. Pierre, there is a lot of misery, violence, hunger in Haiti at this, at this critical moment. What could or should be done to alleviate the situation immediately and assist the people of Haiti in a transition to democracy? Right. But the thing is, the, 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 the way that this question is always posed is as if Haitians need someone to help them out. And the reality is we don't what we what the thing that we need is to, to be left alone. We have not been left alone by anybody. Uh, you know, Haitians had a whole set of solutions. They came together and that was completely sidelined. And what Haitians want is it's the same people that caused the problem are the same people presenting the case for our, our savior. It's like the arsonist then becomes the, the firefighter. I mean, you know, even at the UN meeting, you know, you had the, the, the Haitian case being presented by Helen Lalim, who is an unelected um, for head of the core group, which Haitians had no say in, 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 in imposing on us. And so what we want, what everybody wants is to leave us alone. And there, there is a deep racism, I think, when it comes to talking about Haiti. You know, Haiti is more than its poverty. That was Jamima Pierre, co-coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace team on Haiti, an associate professor of African-American studies at UCLA. Find more analysis and commentary on the current crisis in Haiti by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On October 5th, Saudi Arabia and the OPEC-plus nations announced a major cut in oil production, totaling 2 million barrels a day, the largest decrease since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The policy represents a major reversal in production policy for OPEC, which had slashed output by a record 10 million barrels per day in early 2020, after demand plummeted due to pandemic lockdowns. Oil prices have fallen to roughly $80 a barrel from more than $120 in early June, amid forecasts of a global economic recession. The production cuts for November are an attempt to reverse the decrease in oil prices. President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia in June, despite his 2020 campaign pledge to punish the kingdom for the brutal assassination of dissident U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But his outreach to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman failed to prevent production cuts or isolate Russia. On October 19th, President Biden announced that he would release 15 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Reserve to bring down prices and called on U.S.-based oil companies not to use their record-breaking profits to buy back stocks or increase stockholder dividends. Instead, he said, these profits should be used to increase production to lower gas prices for consumers. Your reporter spoke with William Lazonic, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts. Here he urges President Biden to issue an executive order to ban stock buybacks 
as the only way oil companies will cease using profits from high oil prices to pump up their stock value. The response of using resources from the strategic stockpile makes sense in order to you know, keep, keep prices down. But we do want, we, and normally we rely upon, the uh, oil companies to produce oil and to, to pump it out of the ground and to get us uh, in, you know, into the, the pumps, etc. And the problem is that that's not the only thing that the oil companies do. Uh, when they make profits, they tend to use those profits to not pump oil out of the ground, but to pump up their stock prices. And this is not something that's unique to the oil companies, but it's uh, really, uh, I would call it the American disease. And that is companies buying back their own shares. Uh, now, companies uh, that are publicly listed, like, let's say, ExxonMobil, will uh, pay dividends. And we as savers uh, can usually count on those dividends when they have profit to uh, give us some income, or directly or indirectly. But they also do something that they shouldn't be doing, and that is buying back their own shares. Because uh, unlike dividends, which uh, reward uh, people who hold shares for holding the shares, uh, in fact, the people who make money out of stock buybacks are people who time the, the selling of shares or share sellers. And those include the top executives with the uh, stock-based pay they have. They exercise their stock options, awards vests, and they sell the stock, and they reap the gains uh, as, as part of their pay. It also includes uh, hedge funds uh, who are, love stock buybacks and timing the buying and selling of shares, including some people we call hedge fund activists. You've probably heard of people like Carl Icahn, Nelson Peltz, Paul Singer, who go in and rip apart companies in the way – they take the money out and get the stock price up. A prime way is by having the company do buybacks and pump up the stock price. Now, the buybacks come at the expense of, uh, in the oil industry, oil exploration, paying workers higher wages, uh, more taxes to the government. Meanwhile, we actually subsidize, in the, the oil industry, we actually subsidize these companies while they are actually using the subsidies just to pump up their stock prices. Uh, between 2005 and 2015, when oil prices were high, ExxonMobil, was the most profitable of the companies, was doing about $22 billion of buybacks per year. That's $22 billion, just to pump up its stock price. When the, when the oil prices came down and its profits came down, it still paid dividends. It stopped doing buybacks and even had to cut dividends eventually. Uh, but now that uh, prices are high the buybacks are back. And that's how companies are using those high prices. So first of all, we shouldn't allow the buybacks. We should have windfall uh, taxes on their profits when they get lucky that the prices are high. If we're going to have government policy that's going to try to uh, contain high prices as part of the uh, fight against inflation or for purpose of national security, then uh, we, in fact, uh, should ban companies from doing these buybacks. I think we should ban all companies, but I uh, have suggested that uh, perhaps Joe Biden could uh, issue an executive order saying, okay, uh, we have a national emergency. Uh, the oil companies cannot do any buybacks now. Professor Lazanek, would the oil companies challenge such an executive order in court? Is there any role for Congress here? I know time is short before this uh, midterm yeah. election, but what else could be done if such a, an executive order would be challenged in court and maybe tied up for months, if not years? 
it, it would be in some ways perhaps symbolic, but it would it would say we're not just asking you please, as as happened uh, recently, uh, where the, the president said please don't do buybacks. <laughs> he said uh, you are not allowed to do them, and, and let that be challenged in the court. Yes, it wouldn't solve the problem immediately, mm-hmm. and there would be a huge blowback against that. That was William Lozanic, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts. Learn more about Big Oil's record profits and stock buybacks by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. While coal mining is fading across the U.S., it's still very much active in the states of West Virginia and Wyoming. Coal is possibly the dirtiest form of fossil energy, greatly damaging the climate and the communities where coal is extracted. The most destructive and polluting form of mining is so-called mountaintop removal mining, where the tops of mountains are literally blown apart to get to the coal seams beneath. This mining method produces dangerous toxic air pollution and contaminates the mountain streams where the blasted waste material is dumped. Two decades ago, during Cole's heyday, West Virginia University professor Michael Hendricks began studying the health impacts of coal mining with a focus on mountaintop removal. Due to his efforts and others, the National Academy of Sciences undertook a study of mountaintop removal's serious health impacts. However, when President Trump took office, he ended the study. Many people in Appalachia are troubled that in the almost two years that Joe Biden has been president, the study has not yet been resumed. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Michael Hendricks, now an emeritus professor at Indiana University's School of Public Health, about his team's groundbreaking research on mountaintop removal mining's negative health impacts and his support for ending this destructive mining practice. It was just a topic that I started to learn about when I moved to West Virginia, and I realized that there really hadn't been any peer-reviewed research that had been done on the potential health impacts of, of mountaintop removal, even though you would hear anecdotes and stories about it, but I couldn't really find research. So we started, for example, by looking at the county-level mortality data that the CDC keeps on an annual basis where you can look at age-adjusted death rates overall and by certain causes. And we were able to link that with data from the Department of Energy on the amounts of mining that would take place in different areas in Appalachia. And then we could control for other demographics, as we are taught to do, is very standard practice. You control statistically for for age and sex and race and education and and income and so on. And uh, we showed there really was an independent, significant effect of living close to these surface mining operations on mortality rates over and above the other risks. Uh, And not only was it present, but it was it was a stronger effect as the levels of mining increased is measured by tons of coal. And it was also stronger specifically in areas where mountaintop removal was taking place as opposed to other forms of mining. 
And so we went from there to do community studies where we were going actually door to door and collecting community health surveys from people who lived either close to the mining operations or not. Found again that yes, people that lived near the mining sites were at greater risk for a variety of health symptoms. And the types of problems that we would find were primarily cardiovascular and respiratory problems that were consistent with the data that we were seeing from the mortality data. So it all kind of held together. So from there, we went to environmental studies. We found elevated levels of particulate matter in the air around these mining sites in people's neighborhoods, you know, in homes and residential areas, not just at the mine sites, but in communities where people were living. What do you see in the future? Do you think that because of its incredible destructiveness and and health implications, that mountaintop removal shouldn't be done? I think it should not be done, yes. It's actually for three reasons. Because of the public health problems that it generates uh, through the air and water pollution that the practice uh, creates. Because of its environmental destructiveness, it can't be done, for example, according to the provisions of the Clean Water Act, if, that, if the Clean Water Act were really enforced. It's not. And it also doesn't make sense economically, because this form of mining uses these huge drag lines, they use these explosives, and they are able to extract a lot more coal per employee than other forms of mining. So this form of mining, despite what the coal industry will tell you, does not generate economic strength for the region. If you look just at basic statistics, the parts of Appalachia that engage in mountaintop removal have the highest poverty rates, not the lowest. They have the highest unemployment rates, not the lowest. They have the lowest income levels. There's just not that many jobs. There's a few guys working a site, and they like their job because it does pay well if you're one of the few fortunate ones that has it. Because if you're not one of those few, you're probably unemployed or you're working part-time at the Dollar General. There's nothing else going on. And you go in here and you strip the forests and blow them up and pollute the waters and decimate the land. Nobody else wants to come in there and offer new opportunities and new types of jobs. It's, it's a moonscape that makes no sense whatsoever, except it helps make a few executives rich and it helps reelect politicians. That's it. Michael Hendricks, a number of years ago, legislation called the ACE Act was introduced. That stands for Appalachian Community Health Emergency Act. It would put a moratorium on MTR and conduct an independent health assessment of its impacts, yeah. Do you, do you think that there's, I don't know, do you think there's any hope for that? Yeah, I would like to say yes under the current uh, more um, receptive administration that maybe it would be taken up again, but it hasn't been which is a little bit disappointing to me, a little bit of a surprise, but maybe there's just not the widespread support for it. Maybe there's too many other fires to put out. I don't know. I don't know why, but just like the NAS study hasn't been taken up again, this ache Act, you would think if it was going to have a chance at all, it would have a chance now, but it's just nothing's happening that I'm aware of. That was Michael Hendricks, Professor Emeritus at the University of Indiana School of Public Health. Learn more about the campaign to end mountaintop removal coal mining by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellas Falls, Vermont, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.